0: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you.
1: Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. What do you think about when you hear someone say long-term athlete development? Do you picture the elite club travel team athlete competing at a high level? How about the athlete who is part of a professional team development league? Or just how about the grade school kid who wants to just get better at sports in general? Likely most of us would think about the athlete who is at that elite level hoping to be on track to go to professional sports. But perhaps that's not how we should be thinking about that. Today on the podcast, I have two guests who recently led a pre-conference at the PRISM 10th Annual Meeting on Long-Term Athlete Development to lend their expertise. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I have two guests joining us today. Dr. Matthew Grady is an Associate Professor of Clinical Pediatrics and Pediatric Sports Medicine Specialist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He completed medical school at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, followed by an internship at Johns Hopkins and then his pediatric residency at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He completed his sports medicine fellowship at the University of Maryland. He is the fellowship director for the primary care sports medicine program at CHOP. And relevant to the podcast topic today, he has coached youth soccer, basketball, and baseball at numerous levels. Dr. Jeremy Ng is an assistant clinical professor at UCLA. He received his medical degree from Boston University and completed his emergency medicine internship at The Ohio State University followed by his emergency medicine residency at the Albert Einstein Medical Center. His sports medicine fellowship was completed at the Combined University of Pennsylvania Children's Hospital of Philadelphia program. He is the associate lead team primary care physician for the Los Angeles Dodgers, as well as a team physician for the U.S. Soccer Federation Youth National Team. Also relevant specifically to the podcast episode today, he has served as a track and field coach at the high school, college, and USA track and field levels, and also has served as a performance coach and physician For an NFL combine preparatory program. He serves as a medical advisory board member for the Corey Stringer Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Matt and Jeremy. Thanks for having us. Well, I really enjoyed the pre-conference at PRISM you both led. It was entertaining, especially talking about with our couple other lecturers that you had when they gave some specific examples. And always, I like someone who has an accent. So it was fun. And if you had been at the conference, I encourage you to maybe log into a register for it through PRISM. You can still access it online and I think it would be a good thing for you guys to listen to, but there was lots of things to think about from that. We're not going to rehash the entire four-hour pre-conference, but I thought we could hit some highlights today and some key points. And a good place to start for me is why you both felt it was necessary to address this as a topic for a pre-conference for PRISM. You know What interested both of you in this topic specifically, and I think this could be a good way to give your backgrounds in this area in more detail for our listeners than what I just gave in the intro.
2: I think the the biggest thing is, I used to be a coach. As you talked about, I've coached longer than I've been a physician. And so when I look at research regarding sports participation and I see the hot button topic is specialization. And I think, like I said in the conference, uh, you know, our hearts are in the right place, but we aren't really looking at what we should be looking at. When I'm thinking, when I wear my coach's hat, I think of what are these athletes doing? And we use that analogy in the pre course about there being a house or building where where kids go in one side, they spend several years in this building learning about sports and training and developing. They come out the other side years later. And as physicians, we kind of only see the ones that come out injured or burnt out. And we kind of look at it and we point to that building of specialization development. We say that's bad. Specialization is bad, even though we really, for years, really couldn't even define it. So I think the important thing in that, that course and what we should talk about you know, today, I'd like to talk about is you know what goes on inside that house, what is going on for as far as skill development, teaching, and eventually when they get older, training and structure. And I think as physicians, we should work on learning what goes on inside that house, what goes on for training, who are the people who coach them, what's their education and understanding, growth and development. I think as a coach, when I think about it, We'd be skip over that whole topic when it comes to specialization. And it should be about sports participation. And that's kind of what I've always thought about. And Matt was my mentor and my program director. And I've talked to Zeroff about this for over a decade. So eventually we had to put our money where our mouths were.
0: And I would say that my perspective is as a parent who has two kids who've played Division three sports, as a coach and as a pediatrician, I think about how do we get kids engaged in physical activity? And then how does that help them as they progress and develop? I'm really looking at this from the pediatrician's perspective. And we have lots of data that show that kids who are physically active and kids who have better motor skills have better academic performance. And so for me, when we talk about developing physical skills, this isn't necessarily just to make elite athlete. This is every single child should have basic motor skills that they work on developing through childhood. And if we can get every kid active, then we're giving them a good chance to maintain physical activity for life. And we're also setting them up to see that academically. And so as a pediatrician, I want to see all kids grow and develop. When we hear about specialization, Jeremy and I talk all the time that, and if you want to specialize in anything, whether it's going to medical school or being a professional athlete, you're going to spend time in it and it takes time to get good. Is specialization in and of itself bad? Well, in the right context, it's actually what you need to do to get to that finish line. But we want to talk about how do we do it and how do we do it at the younger levels and how do we do it at the higher levels? And Jeremy's experience is with pro athletes or future pro athletes and elite athletes. And my experience was all coaching kids from ages four up to probably 14 or through eighth grade. My goals and his goals are similar in that I want to get skill acquisition, skill development. I want to make it fun for kids. And also know that if kids don't develop basic skills, it's not fun anymore. And when it's not fun, they drop out. And when they drop out, they become sedentary. And then we have our problems with obesity and everything else. Our combined idea is like, what are we doing as coaches, as physicians, to encourage physical movement, to encourage this development in all kids? And then if we take a peek inside the house that Jeremy referenced, what are we doing there? Because that's where some of the problems happen that we're not doing it right. Our conference was really hopefully setting up that we can do it at the low level for every single kid. And it's the same concept that we'd expend all the way to the elite athlete. While a few of our lecturers really talked about the elite athletes and the IMG academies and the professional sports world, we also had people lecturing, like my brother who's a PE teacher, about How do we do it at the lower levels? And I think it's the same continuum. And I think that's the emphasis that I was kind of putting on my piece and hopefully with Jeremy and his expertise at the elite level, we could kind of talk about what should be doing inside of the house, not just is it good or bad.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a key point when I think about this a little bit, when we're talking about how do we give advice as clinicians to a patient, we have a hard time doing that in terms of uh, the analogy I like to use is in the world of concussions that I and Matt and I know live in a lot, where we've gone through this return to learn thing. And is something that I'm very passionate about is we talk about giving these notes to schools, describing exactly what you need to do to manage this kid through a school day with oftentimes check boxes of do these things and do these things. But we were never trained in medical school or residency, or even on our fellowships to manage a kid's school day. But I think as a pediatrician, I think there's lots of things that we can take away from there and what we learned in motor skill development and growth and development and apply those to coaches. I think honestly, a pediatrician could be a really good coach knowing if they could apply what they learned in growth and development and motor skills and when those things happen and applying those to what we do for training. And same sort of thing happens. We should probably be doing for a lot of the coaches at that youth level as are the skills that they're really teaching and are they trying to apply to these kids, are they actually appropriate for their motor skill development? Are we trying to make them shoot for the moon early on? And I don't know. What do you guys think about that?
2: I think you're right. I think one thing that we did do with concussions is we collaborated. We collaborated with school administrators and we understood what went on inside the school and their expertise. And the same thing has to happen here. The sports performance coaches sports scientists out there, PhDs, these are highly educated people who are experts of what they've been doing and they've done it for years and we need to collaborate with them and learn and there needs to be teaching. So there needs to be on both sides. You're right. As far as coaching, one of the biggest problems is that the best coaches coach elite athletes and a lot of other coaches either come from that background or some of them want to coach in that elite era and get started younger. They have less of a Motivation to get that growth and maturation part in, they have to win and move up the ranks too. And so it's short term game for them as well. And it's not all of it. And Matt and I have discussed this part too. But the reality is that these coaches, there's great coaches out there, just like there's great doctors and not so great doctors, great coaches, not so great coaches. A lot of them teach with them from adult perspective and they're looking for the one person that looks like LeBron and everybody else like that. And it's the champions model, the early mature and everything like that. So. What they need to do, yes, there needs to be coaches education and there needs to be a growth and maturation piece to that. And there needs to be people who want to stay in that youth athlete development field. And there are plenty that do. And I'm telling you, as far as coaches are concerned, if it was offered, they love what they do and they would eat that up. They would absolutely love that. So, and as from a physician's perspective, yes, we also need to meet them halfway The paper was out a year ago that said the average physician gets about twelve hours of sports performance teaching over the six, eight, ten years that they train. So we need to do better too. We need to understand sports performance and go from there.
0: So Mark, I have a great story. You'll love this one. As a coach, I'm pretty competitive, as you know. So I always wanted to win, and so one of my strategies was is that if I didn't always have the best player on my team, but if my worst player Was better than your worst player, and my second worst player was better than your second worst player. That my team may beat your team, even though I didn't have the very best player on the team. Now, with Patrick Mahomes beating the Eagles, he probably was the best player on the team. It kind of hurts. But for the most part, if I can get my players better than your players, then I probably have a good chance to win. From that perspective, every kid counts. If we're playing baseball and I only got three kids who can hit the ball and the other Six kids in the lineup can't. The chance of me winning goes down. I need to focus on every single kid. And then, when as a pediatrician, you're saying, okay, so I have kids with different abilities, but I need to try to improve each of these kids' abilities. And if the kid who couldn't bat at the beginning of the year can bat at the end of the year, one, I have a better chance of winning. Two, I have a better chance of him enjoying the game because now he can be a contributor to a team. And if we don't win and he's better, I can say I did a good job coaching. So at the youth level, the coaching part, yeah, I'm still trying to win, but I'm trying to win by getting all my guys better. And if that happens, then I think I did a successful job. And so a little bit is as a clinician, I'm thinking like, okay, so like, how do I get someone improved? The same way I think when I have a fellow, how do I improve my fellow from the beginning of the year to the end of the year? And we know that we're going to have some spectacular fellows and we'll have some fellows who are kind of mediocre. But my goal is still the same, that I'm in an educational model. I'm trying to get everyone a little bit better. And as a coach with the athlete, I'm still trying to improve their motor skills to get a little bit better. And I want to engage every kid that way. I think that's kind of like the message as clinicians that we need to think about, that what are you doing on your team that gets you better, that makes it fun for you, that makes you less likely to drop out? I think that's the part about Jeremy and coaching. And I'm like, I totally agree. And then can we give coaches the idea of how do you coach to try to win, but also try to coach to keep it fun and develop all the kids?
1: So, Matt, do you want to comment whether Jeremy was one of those good fellows or those mediocre fellows? No, I'm just kidding.
0: (laughs) Well, I thought he was kind of mediocre, but as 10 years have gone by, he was the first fellow and he put the bar pretty high. So I guess I've had to review it and say, well, maybe he was actually pretty good.
1: See Jeremy, I got an affection for you because I was the first fellow at our program to—I mean, first fellow of the accredited program. I should say there were there were two other fellows <laughs> before me, Jordan Metzler and Paul Stricker, which I think are probably pretty good people in the pediatric sports
2: medicine world. So <laughs> uh, that was an incredible year, I'll tell you. It was—it uh, was such a fun year. It was tiring, but it was—it was a great year. Matt runs a great program. I think that one thing people need to understand is. There is a way to work on skill acquisition and skill development. Skill development and being successful winning, they're not mutually exclusive. And I think about it a lot of times when US soccer youth national teams, when we go and we play a team like England, and I tell Matt this all the time. Maybe they would come to the US for a week or a team would come to US for a week out at IMG or something. And the first time you play, maybe twice during that week, the first time you play them, they're gonna, they play a little out of formation and they play a certain way, not your typical way England or another team, another national team will play. They're playing to win that day, but they're playing to win within the scheme that they're working on to develop their players. And so maybe they don't win. They're trying to, and that's the difference. And that's what people have to understand. It's not line people up certain ways and everybody laughing and joke their way through it. They're trying to develop. And that day, that day they're trying to win. And then they'd go, they train and play us later on in the week and maybe play the real way and do quite well versus us. But I think that's a big difference is competition in this in this whole culture of specialization. And I always say, don't confuse culture specialization with specialization, overcompete, lots of travel, big fancy names, 10,000 national rankings with five national champions for everybody. Everybody's a national champion. And I think the big thing with that is, and, and Matt and I did that week, Google search. It took us three minutes to find, I think, four different national rankings for under 12 soccer. Everybody wants that elite travel team, Olympic development. They want that, you know, that's all marketing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and don't confuse the culture specialization with specialization. And with that comes the over competition. Why are you competing? Are you competing showcase in these travel clubs, travel far for ranking, or are you trying to develop? So it's not about showcase. You go to a showcase and get shellacked and then go back again and get shellacked and eventually get hurt because you don't never fix the problem. You need to go back. You need to work on your skill development and then maybe go to lesser competitions and work within that strategy of skill development. We're going to play this way and work on our weaknesses because you can't do that. And we talk about, I don't want to point anybody out, but if there is a major tournament every weekend, we talked about that major tournament every weekend, you have to win. Johnny's never going to work on his left hand or his, we can't. He can. He has to win. You need to go back to drawing board, practice, and then go to lesser competitions. They overcompete, but they overcompete in a serious manner, and that's what leads to the problem: is the culture.
1: But I could come out with Alan Iverson saying, "Practice." You know, come on. We don't need but Ted practice. Lasso.
2: <laughs> was that Ted Lasso too? Did he do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. He had a great line. He basically repeated the entire press conference, and it was just.
1: Oh, you know uh, what? I have to go back and watch that one. I have to get prepared for season three coming up. Yes,
2: any yes. else. And let me just say, Matt was pretty upset last week. And I felt awful um, getting all of those texts and not being able to help and just watching it all dwindle away. So mm-hmm. my condolences to, to Matt and the Philly people. I, I had a tough one.
1: Uh, hey, at least Philadelphia still standing though, right? Yeah. Yep. That's always an accomplishment after a game.
0: Never. That, this, is a, this is a misnomer. We lose <laughs> frequently. We're very good at managing losing. There was no looting. There was nothing. We're not expecting to win. So when we win, we go crazy. But we have lots of practice losing. So there was never a problem when we lost.
1: <laughs> it world but your, fans, your fans are the most affectionate fans. That's I'll that's never, ever, ever, ever forget. When I was with the Rams, I had been to every city by the time the team decided to pack up and move out to the West Coast for greener pastures financially for Stan Kroenke. I'll never forget the first game coming into Philadelphia on the team bus. And I'm looking out the window and here I see 10-year-olds flipping the bird at the team bus along with their parents. And I'm like, wow, this is an interesting uh, uh, fan base here. But I have to say, my brother, he is a ginormous Philadelphia sports fan, even though he has never set foot in the, the city. So I have to indulge him a little bit with his <laughs> Philadelphia fantasy there. So
2: I did spend what is it, seven years at least in Philly. I, I mean, it's it's great, it's the best. I'm just giving giving that a little bit of a hard time. So it's all good.
0: Jeremy's from New England, so I have heard for years and years and years how they have a right to go to the Super Bowl and win. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. so I probably practiced what those kids were practicing. You, Mark, yeah, Jeremy a few times with the hey, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> Yeah. And it's
1: good for all of you listeners that you don't have the video portion. Of you just did. Otherwise we would have to have blurred out.
2: He was telling me I was number one. That's all. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> number two, <laughs>
0: one and one,
1: getting back on topic here, <laughs> since we're digressing a little bit, you know, one of the key concepts that you guys introduced that, that I had not heard of, and I was actually very interested in this, is this concept of motor performance abilities. Take your listeners through this concept and how that relates to athletic development, because I found this very interesting.
2: This is another thing when it comes to performance coaches, this is a concept that's been around for decades. And it basically says that almost all sports and all movements and and sports movements can be broken down into specific motor performance abilities and some proportion of motor performance abilities, that being uh, endurance, strength, speed, coordination, and flexibility. Those are the five foundational motor performance abilities. And taken in their pure form, they really don't actually have a lot to do with sports, and I, we give the example that it takes four-tenths of a second to produce maximal strength, but most sports skills take less than half that time to move and everything. But when you take those motor performance abilities and you mash them and you mix them up and everything, you get sports-specific motor performance abilities. And that is what we are trying to look at and develop. And what I tell people all the time is we need to encourage physicians to think less about sports as separate entities and start considering the fact that All athletic endeavors, for the most part, comprise some proportion of these motor performance abilities. And so when a parent comes and asks them if their child's old enough to train with certain groups for a certain sport in a certain way, what they don't realize they're asking is that they are saying, is my child emotionally and developmentally ready to train these specific motor performance abilities? And if you can understand when you can develop them or when they develop on their own. And and in some cases, even for physicians, how to develop them, then you can make your way towards answering those questions and doing so without any bias. And I think that's the most important thing. And then that's why we talked about the motor performance abilities and then went through systematically on how they develop, when they develop, and try to break it down that way and just try to steer people away from to tunnel vision specialization because you can develop these and we say it all the time whether you're playing three sports one sport no sport at all and it really if you can just break it down that way i think it's just a lot easier to think about as as athletic endeavors and also people don't play sports too it's not about sports like matt says about well, physical literacy and physical literacy for all And
1: we'll definitely come to that topic in just a minute, but why in general do we need to rethink this concept of long-term athlete development Is not just being for the elite athlete? I mean, we talk about that a lot, and I think there's a lot of emphasis on that. I mean, obviously, Jeremy, you've had a role with, you know, that highest level of training people for the combine. We can have all sorts of discussions about the combine and training for the combine and all that kind of stuff, having been on the other side of doing the physicals there and such. But I'm just kind of curious, how should we reframe that? I mean, what's a better way of
2: thinking about that? First thing is athlete is anyone who moves and works and, and moves and everything. And if you think of an athlete that way, you think let them less have wearing a uniform and getting on a bus or a plane and signing a contract. It's about all kids. And like Matt said before, the beginning parts are the same, whether you're going to be an Olympic athlete or someone who you really just want to get to have a good relationship with their own bodies and making it comfortable and then want to have an active lifestyle. And also sports participation too. And if you look at it that way, there are some parts of those more responsibilities that you can start to develop at a very young age. And if you understand, like Matt went through in the conference about growth, maturation, cognitive learning, skill acquisition, then you can understand how to put all of that together to make it fun, to make them participate. Because one thing I haven't talked about, much about is why kids quit. It's not fun to get hurt and you don't match the challenge with their perceived competence. And it's about keeping them engaged, keeping them engaged long-term. So at some point, these elite athletes are going to rise up. They'll declare themselves through the same type of training. And at some point, depending on the sport, they'll diverge and their training will start to change. But those first parts are all the same. And I'm telling you, you cannot skip steps, whether you are somebody training for the combine, uh, which we've had, and we couldn't skip steps. And we just let them just train through combine to to anybody. You, You can't skip steps. And the beginning parts are all the same.
0: So I would kind of sum that up in my perspective is it's a continuum. You're doing the same thing for everyone. And then obviously people who have unique skills will be able to progress or develop those skills over time, but everyone should start on the same platform. And when we talk about where do we start, we're talking about probably kids pre-puberty. And so when you talk about pre-puberty, you'd say, well, you basically have a proportional level person. We talk about puberty, you know, like the feet and hands get big and then the arms and legs get big and then the torso kind of catches up and finally we get muscle mass. Pre all that, you have someone who's uh, pretty well balanced, coordinated. And if we look at like when kids can achieve skills, around age four, we're really seeing like a development of starting to see basically a lot of the skills. You can learn how to swim, you can learn how to ski, you can learn how to ride a bike and you can skip. So you're seeing like these motor skills can actually develop during that time. And we would say from a growth and development standpoint, the ages probably from like 4 to 12 or 4 to 10, like the pre-puberty ages, when you're symmetric, you have this great capacity to engage in some of these motor learning patterns. You should be able to work on developing motor learning patterns and developing motor skills without all the muscles. That's kind of the pre-puberty stuff. But if you look at a kid who's seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, they can run, they can throw just like an adult. And it looks exactly like adult in a small stature. And we say in pediatrics, kids aren't little adults. And that's definitely true because they hit puberty and then they regress and, and things <laughs> kind of fall apart a little bit. And then eventually they figure out their body again, second time through, and then you have the adult version. And that adult version can do a whole lot of things because they have a whole lot more power that the younger kids can't do. But the younger kids can have those motor skill patterns. The idea of teaching a kid how to catch a ball or throw a ball or hop or jump or skip, They can all do that at that age. And quite honestly, little kids are ready to try things and learn things. That's kind of how they're wired. If we just give them that opportunity and we encourage those things to happen, we can start to build these foundational building blocks, as Jeremy calls it, for how you move in space. And how you move in space is how you play sports. But it's also how you get up and down the stairs. It's how you do everyday life. And we want kids to be able to run and jump and roll. And that to me is just the continuum. So When you're doing your sports training, your sports specialization, if you're getting kids to do all those things during the specialization process, then you're optimizing a time when they can learn all those things. If you focus only on doing one specific task over and over and over again, yes, they can perfect that. But you had a window to develop lots of skills. And if you only developed one, I think you missed the boat. You didn't build a big enough base. And you don't really know who's going to be great at what when they're 16 or 17 or 18. And so if you can get a really wide base, then as you get to be a little bit older, you can start to figure out which place you want to hone your skills. Because to be honest, a lot of great athletes are good at lots of sports. They're good at baseball. They're good at basketball. They're good at football. They're good at lacrosse. They're good at soccer. You put a ball in front of them, they're good at everything. And you don't know where they're going to be elite. You just know they're generally good. Getting a wide exposure, getting them to do all of these different movement patterns is important early on. And that could be in the context of playing multiple sports. Or it could be in the context of only one sport that has a lot of different movement patterns. And in the irony is, my brother, who was with us at the conference and is a PE teacher, was also coaching this weekend. And he was coaching uh, 12-year-old girls. And they were out on soccer field. And their parents dropped them off. And they're trying to play. And the parents are like, how come you're not playing 11 on 11? And my brother looks at them is like, well, they can't trap the ball. They can't juggle the ball. They can't control the ball. So if I play them three on three, they all get to touch the ball and they get to run around. If I play them 11 on 11, it's just a big scrum and no one gets anything out of this. And eventually they're going to stop playing because when the kids who can control the ball play with them, they get dominated and they get pushed to the side. And so he's like, you know, it's a funny, but they're missing the window to get better now by not doing small sided coaching. And a good coach would recognize where they are in that developmental process and say, okay, this is where you are today. We should be working on these sets of skills. And if you progress and do all these, then we can move you up. And a good coach is going to make sure that they do a lot of movement patterns incorporated and not just one. And so I think, like, think of this as a continuum and where do you do it? The same way we think of fellowship education as a continuum. And so like, where is the fellow in their developmental process as a physician? And then what's appropriate training for them? And so you don't want to give them something that's too easy that they've already done because they get bored, but you don't want to put them in a situation that's over their head and then are really not ready medically appropriate for that. The same concept that we would talk about with medical education is the same thing we're doing here with kids and learning. And so we try to make it fun. we try to keep it challenging. Challenging enough that you want to keep getting better, but not so easy that it gets bored.
2: That's an important concept too. A continuum, not a progression. It's not cookbook, just like medicine's not cookbook. So continuum is when you're ready for the next step by showing that you have coordination or when you get puberty or on beyond, you're starting to be able to apply force. that's when you're ready for the next step. It's not three weeks of this, two weeks of this, four weeks of this. And and I'll step back when Matt said, because this is an argument for a lot of specialization, they say, well, specialization is bad because you have nothing but repetitive activity. That screams to me bad coaching. That seems to me bad skill development. That seems to me bad teaching. It's because we just go over the five motor performance abilities and the sports specific motor performance abilities and you should be developing them all. And uh, the big thing before puberty you can't develop them all equally, but you can certainly work on all of them. Some aren't available to be developed as well, so I think that's important. Pre-puberty is like the, the key word would be coordination, right? You, you get better slowly because body parts get bigger, and there's really you can sit on the couch and get better because of that. But you get better for almost anything because of neuromuscular adaptation. You're able to you're teaching these kids to recruit more motor units, nervous system coordination you know, motor synchronization. And, and that's what you're teaching them. And there's so much neuroplasticity at such a young age. Their brain is still developing and everything great. But then we talk about eight through 12, what they call, you know, the skill hunger years, where, you know, kinesthetic sense, proprioception, vision, vestibular uh, development, which hap- just happen to be very important parts of sports and coordination, athletic and movement, uh, you know, for anybody. And that's when you want to really take advantage of that. If it has to be three sports, great, but I'm never going to tell somebody that they have to dump one great coach to get three crappy ones. So I think that that's my big thing is what are you doing during this time? Is there variation? Are you working on all the motor form's abilities and are you doing it in a proportion that's appropriate for their development? I think if I think of one word before the growth spurt, I think of coordination. There's agility, there's speed. There is some, even though the reactive strength and everything develops with time, there is everything to it. So if you have this motor unit synchronization, you have nervous system coordination. So when mother nature gives you things like muscle mass and testosterone hormones, if you will, longer limbs, and you can apply them appropriately. It's just like revving something on the carpet and just waiting and just so you can put what you need just to let it go. And that's what happens. And I think that's the important part. If you just think coordination, and then if you think post duty, you know, again, there's a continuum. when you think force, right? One word, force. That would be all the things I just talked about that mother nature starts to provide. And then you take, if you have that coordination already, because again, it takes, like Matt said, it takes a really long time to be good at something. And look at this audience who didn't spend years I guess it's a bad thing, maybe because some of us are probably pathologic about it. But I, I think that that's what it does. It takes a really long time to do something, and and you can do it early if you know well, what to do. The agility, speed, strength, resistance, all of those things you can do. That's fine, and you get your hours or whatever you want to call it in. That's totally fine. And when puberty comes and you get these special tools in your tool belt, then you can really take off. But I think it's just really important to think of the fact that it doesn't matter one sport, three sports, no sports.
0: We've already talked about strength training in youths. Uh, The AAP has had a number of things. It's been talked about for 20 years. that strength training is safe. If we look about strength training, like how does that develop? We would say, well, early on pre-puberty, you'd have motor neuron learning and you learn how to recruit neurons better. And as a result, you're more efficient in using your muscles that you have and you gain strength. And then later when puberty kicks in, we get muscle hypertrophy and then you have strength. And so you'd have strength through this continuum and you're starting off early in the process as those neural patterns of learning. And then later on, you're adding the power. And so I think if you think about strength as the same analogy, when we're just talking about this now, not just as strength, but like as all of the things kids can do. And so can you build that coordination? Can you build those motor patterns? And then when you get the extra power, those motor patterns work better, but they could be working from early on. Every kid can do that. And some will obviously look like Arnold Schwarzenegger and some will look like me. And so sorry about that if you've got my genetics and you're not going to have the power that someone like Schwarzenegger has. But it's the same idea. You can have the same motor pattern learning and then add that power through muscle hypertrophy later.
1: So can we go back and maybe make this long-term athlete develop Is how do we approach that for the 50-year-old pediatric sports medicine doctor who likes to run, who has seen his performance gradually decline as the years go on? And how we, can we refocus that towards how do we develop someone for 50 and beyond maybe? No, I'm
0: just no, we're going to talk about that right now because it's funny because <laughs> Jeremy is going to go off and I'm going to stop him, but I won't stop him quite yet. Jeremy's going to say, well, what sprint training have you done recently? What power training have you done recently? What are the motor performance abilities that you're developing besides just endurance?" Because if you want to run faster, you need more power and more efficiency. So go ahead, Jeremy. I teed you up. Okay. No,
1: no, you don't You don't have to tee him up because I will admit the string training and the sprint training have not been happening because I'm recording things like this podcast. So
2: okay. <laughs> I, that's my excuse. No, I'm I get just a little kidding. distracted when he does the Schwarzenegger analogy because I thought has <laughs> so many funny things to say. So let me try to regroup here. But I think that the thing when he talks about neuromuscular adaptation for prepuberal athletes, and well, we'll probably get into this. You know, I will separate one on the, the senior athlete or whatever. Not that you're senior. I'm just saying. Oh, I'm senior. <laughs> well, okay. But it's all neuromuscular adaptation, not just strength. And that's what we have said. I think, again, we're in our comfort zone. They talk about distance running, which I'm happy to get into with, with about kids. more than happy. And then there we talk about strength because we're comfortable with that. But the reality is it's all neuromuscular adaptation, almost all neuromuscular adaptation before period. How do we get better with sprints? It's maximum velocity movement, limbs moving as fast as possible. Why? So our bodies can learn uh, neuromuscular coordination and motor unit synchronization at top speeds. It's neuromuscular adaptation for that. Agility, same thing. Well, there's cognitive component as well there too, and then cognitive development on that. But pretty much all the motor performance abilities are that. And if even if you look at uh, distance running, yes, there is a segment of population where their VO2 maxes can get better. They don't get, and they can improve with training, but not nearly to the point that adults can. It's still mainly body parts getting bigger there. And there's a difference between VO2 max lab and performance. And that's what we talk about for skill development again, too. And so, how do they wind up getting better? Well, they're becoming more efficient. They like they distance. They like to use the word running economy. To me, it's all the same. Because are you moving appropriately and are you moving efficiently? And I think that learning to move efficiently is important. And yes, I will say that if you want to be a great distance runner uh, when you're a, an adult, you want to work on being a, a great sprinter, a great jumper as a kid, because you're working on those high-speed neuromuscular adaptations and everything. And and if they're coordinated enough, and and I get it, the mechanics is not just amplitude, there are some subtle differences, but that's what they need to do. And you talk about people getting injured all the time when they become college athletes or even late high school athletes. They've been running slow and, and they do a lot of work with distance running here. It's not about that. And If a kid wants to be a distance runner pre-puberty because there's secondary gains, such as it's fun for them, they have a social social outlet, uh, they're good at it, gives them self-esteem, they like to go for runs and bike rides. The parent's great, but they shouldn't be trained. That's not their focus. Motor performance abilities can all develop develop, but not at the same rate, and they need to be doing other things. And to spend all that time doing that at the expense of something else, all the other things you can be doing where you can still develop aerobically indirectly, I think is doing a little bit of a disservice and everything. And so, yeah, that's, that's my part of, you need to be doing that other stuff early. And then we missed that. It's me, you, you know we missed the boat when we were spending our time sitting and, and learning and, and trying to become you know, better doctors and everything. I guess we kind of pay the price for it a little bit later on on the other side. But to me, it's, that's it's all important. neuromuscular neuromotor adaptation before puberty. So not just strength training.
1: So we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll continue our discussion on long-term athlete development. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you wanna learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at PediatricSportsMedicinePodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. Editorcore.com. That's Editorcore.com. Now back to the podcast. Matt, I want to touch base on something you had talked about your brother, who I really appreciated his talk. And just for perspective, he's a PE teacher, also a soccer coach, and actually freestyle, correct? Correct. Yeah. So it was very interesting watching that as well. But I have to remember which podcast episode it was that I did this, but we talked a lot about TAG. And I loved, you know, and I, and I think this is where it just drives me crazy when I hear PE programs, you know, they're, they're going away at the, when you get higher levels and so many kids want to get out of their PE class and they still want to do their after school sports, but they don't want to do PE. And I I just, and parents will endorse that because they're, they're being physically active after school training for their sport. But boy, man, if they have that PE teacher, that's kind of emphasizing things like I saw your brother was doing in his talk man, that's PE. And that's teaching all those things that you kind of talked about as far as developing those motor skills. And and I love TAG. I mean, TAG is like, to me, it's like the most ultimate thing for these little kids as far as developing all these kind of skills we're talking about. But I know your brother's not on the podcast, but I, I'm sure you can kind of speak yeah, to some of that a little bit.
0: He actually builds a whole curriculum for the entire year that has TAG incorporated, woven all the way through. And it, a couple concepts that he's trying to get is that He's trying to help kids develop their motor skills. Being able to run and jump is part of that. But other part is the tag also has a cognitive component to it. You don't want to forget about developing the cognitive with the physical. And I think that they kind of go hand in hand. And that's where tag is really a great game. If you can do some games where if I say red, then one half is the chaser and one half has to be chased. And you're running to a target. And if you get to the target, first without getting tagged, you win. If you get tagged, you lose. And there's a target on each side and the kids are lined up facing each other. And red goes one direction and blue goes the other. You don't know if you're going to sprint going forward or you're going to like pivot and sprint going the other direction. And are you chasing someone or are you being chased? You have that game where it's a pretty simple game, but now he's introduced a cognitive part. He's introduced a change of direction as part of the skill. And he's introduced that acceleration to try to get someone. And then probably. The kids are laughing while they're doing it. And the other part that he's been good at, he said, is, you know, I tell all the kids that we're going to play a game and I want you to find someone who you want to challenge. He says, you know, the kids naturally just pair up with someone who is about equal to them. And with the idea that now you're not just cherry picking to win, you don't go and say, all right, I want to play tag with a slow kid. I'm going to play tag with my buddy who's about the same speed as me. And we'll see if he can get me sometimes and sometimes I can get him. And so now you're challenging each other with kind of equal abilities. The idea of like having it fun means that it's challenging enough that you don't always win. But if you're always losing, that's no fun either, right? He can create a game where you get to run, jump, cut, pivot. You get to play with your buddy. You're laughing about it. You're doing multiple reps. So you just, you know, you're ready, set, go. You line back up. You do it again. You're getting to do lots of repetitions because you get better by doing things, right? If you did every kid line up and you just chase one kid at a time versus everyone lining up and you got a partner and you just go ready when I say go, you chase one and one goes one direction, one goes the other. I think that's kind of the fun part. You can take games that kids would naturally play and incorporate these motor skills. And so I know he's played games with tag where you have to crawl under something, climb over something before you can get to the finish line. He can just make up little obstacles and make it an obstacle course and you're playing tag through the obstacle course. And now you add a cognitive component of what's the quickest way to get through this obstacle course. Do I take the under road? Do I take the over road? Are they going to get me with this one or that one? If I'm tall, is it easier for me to jump over something? If I'm short, is it easier to take the, the underpass, if you will? Again, you're making decisions while you're doing motor skills and you're getting that motor skill acquisition in a way is fun for kids and challenging, and I think helps with their overall development. And if you said, hey, you know, I got a bunch of kids who aren't really that coordinated, you can like play games like this, where they have to crawl out something or under something to kind of work on their basic motor skill development. Getting them to move helps develop their physical literacy. And TAG is just the, the format to get all those things to happen. Um, and so it could be TAG or be some other game that kids like to do. But you know, we go in the playground and we look at like three and five and seven year olds, and they're playing tag spontaneously. So it's a game that they like to play, and he's taking that concept and then building motor skill development and motor skill literacy into that.
1: We had my little tag variant that the, uh, when I would uh, teach Sunday school, but before we get things started with the kids, we called it natural disasters. This was kindergarten through fourth graders, and we would pretend one person would be the tornado or someone would be the blizzard or someone would be the avalanche, you know, really morbid stuff. Kind of it says we'll talk about natural disasters, but the kids loved it. I mean, every time I would come into class, can we play natural disasters today? And you know, they would spin around in order to be the tornado. So they're learning that kind of pivoting, rotating, all that kind of stuff, but they just ate it up and it was, it was fun. And I think, tag for a lot of these kids for a warm up as they're getting ready to get started on their sports thing it's a good thing to think about of just adding it in there for a little bit get these kids excited about stuff
0: if you said i want a warm up a dynamic warm up for my youth sports team mm-hmm. hey like we can just run around and do two laps and like warm our body up yeah. or we could play a game like tag for 5 minutes and if you want to add a soccer ball to make it a soccer tag or you have to kick a ball between someone's legs or you have to do some soccer movement as part of the tag. You could do that too, but again, you could incorporate games where you're you're thinking about motor development and a little bit of cognition. And you're, if you're a good coach, you could incorporate those kind of things that are age appropriate. What my four year olds want to do, what my nine year olds want to do, it may be a little different. And if you can understand where they are developmentally, you should be able to incorporate those in and make it fun.
2: Yeah, I think. Well, first of all, with tag, you know, what's old is new again. And this since tag is all the rage because, and, and it's funny when we, we go back to things that we've been doing all, around, all along and say, wow, we, we know more about science. Maybe we were a little right accidentally. So you can add a little more into that. Yeah. I think the, uh, the warm up is huge. I, I hate calling it a warm up because a warm up is actually part of whatever your session is or your workout and everything like that. But he's right. The active dynamic warm up in the beginning, no matter how old you are or how much time you have, it's a great way to incorporate different areas of motor forms, abilities, either something you want them working on just because they're developmentally at that age, they should be working on regardless of sport and everything. You could take like five of them, like five things and just work on them and then, and then transition to something else as the season progresses. And we talk about how can physicians help out in this long-term athlete development? Yes. The one-to-one in the office setting is going to be the the soldier march through it. But the main thing is we get on uh, like Matt, Matt, the big thing Matt has is he's been on Multiple committees and everything for youth sports. If, if you just help them, they say, "Hey, how can we help these kids develop overall?" The first thing you can do is say, "Okay, for the first, you know, certain amount of time, we're going to take these five things or five things and put them into the active dynamic warm up. That's going to be about seven eight minutes long, and they're going to be doing these movements and developing. And they say, "Well, would we do that like, for basketball or soccer or baseball. Like, well, we you fall, doesn't matter." And then get into it, and then. I think that's really important to understand. In the beginning, it's less structured and everything, and you're doing it. But you, you do that all the way through development. Elite athletes are still going to microdose these little areas of physical literacy in when they're 23, 24 years old, training for the Olympics. They still do that. You want to talk about similarities. That's exactly right, You know, adding it in. And as far as tagus, it's really important. I love, I love it for, for a lot of reasons. You use all the more responsibilities. You talk about when, when kids are pre-puberty, what is there? There's not a lot of structure there right? You don't want structure. You want freedom to move and let them figure out. They don't have adult movement patterns anyway. They got to just let them figure it out. You're not doing that that type of little specific teaching. And the other thing is it's not training. It's skill development, right? So at post-puberty, you need to have training units specifically designed in a training session, divide those out. When can they do them again? Certain number of days later. With kids, you can mash them all, put it together and throw it all down. So they've got agility. They've got speed. They'll they'll have a little bit of endurance just through the whole session and everything like that. So I think it's important to know that you can just not have a lot of structure there. That's where tag comes in. Great. And the other cognitive part is learning your opponent and learning a little bits of uh, about tactics. You know. So I think that's really important. I think it's how you can uh, have something like tag evolve as you get older. Um, and Matt talked a lot about it about uh, you know changing the rules. That's a big deal. Is changing the rules. We I, we could go off on that forever. You know, my son and I, I have two sons and one's 10 and one's three and we play tag. There's no way the three-year-old's winning, (laughs) you know, but if you change the rules so that it's my turn to be it, the 10-year-old's job is not to get tagged and not to let me tag the three-year-old. There's a difference, you know, and I got that from Matt, how he changed the rules for that. And if you've got playing tag and there's two kids that are head and shoulders above everybody else, well, then you pair them with the ones that aren't. You can't get tagged, but you also can't. Let the other kid get tagged, or you're out. Also, and so uh, that brings us a lot to um, the research and how how, um, best forms of development and training. And we need to once we figure those out, we need to alter rules in the bigger setting than just a game of
0: tag. So, and I want to hit on this rules part because it's kind of near and dear to me. One of my things is I developed a uh, five and six year old basketball league for our group. I was the commissioner for the entire basketball league, and a lot of parents wanted kids to play. They want to get them in, and I said, okay, well, we can add something in. So. Obviously, we're thinking, okay, so we want it to be developmentally appropriate. So, how do we do that? So, we made a uh, basketball court with the uh, eight foot baskets. And we said, okay, there's 10 kids on every team, and you get an hour and a half for your game, and you get 30 minutes to play, free play, coaching, whatever before the game. So, there's, you, you get, it's a 30 minute practice. And we made sure every kid on the team had a ball. So, they would come and they would all dribble and they would all shoot chaos, like Jeremy's talking about. But every kid was doing something the entire time, and they weren't coaching. And then the coaches want to coach. I said, "Okay, fine, you can coach. Every kid has to play two quarters." And um, as part of the rules, the parents all asked me to have like a shot clock, and they wanted to have a running clock, and they wanted to keep score. I said, "Okay, that's fine." But at the end of every quarter, we're resetting the score. We're starting over, and so you can win the quarter, but then we're starting all over again. The kids would play, and you know they're five and six. And they would all celebrate if someone made a basket because it was like, you know, a rare occurrence. Right. Uh, and they're giving high fives. They're like doing car wheels down when they made it. And then you know, the quarter's over and you start over again. At the end of the game, the kids all go home and like they played four quarters. They don't know when, who won the first quarter or second quarter because they forgot by now. And the parents are trying to keep track of their kid's winning or losing and what the record is. We kind of like short circuited that. So there isn't like, I don't know how to give you a ranking because you played four separate games of eight minutes each. And the coach doesn't have to like try to win the game by playing his best player at every quarter because we're just starting over anyway. And I say everyone has to play two quarters each the whole time. So he can have a first string and a second string, or he can have mixed up, or he can do whatever he wants. I'll just let him do that. But the idea of, hey, to make things development appropriate, we can manipulate the rules. So the kids have fun. They get lots of exposures. And we're getting them where we want them to be. And so some of those kids will end up being high school basketball players or college basketball players. And they said they got their start doing this. And it was fun. But at least I want every single kid out there to have the opportunity to run around, to dribble the ball, to shoot the ball, because they got at least 30 minutes of that before the game even started, because we know that sometimes kids don't get the ball. And then the coaches hopefully will get every kid involved and engaged. And so, yeah, later on, as you get older, you might change the rules to make it look like real basketball. But even at the next level up, we made people play man-to-man defense because we've decided that they couldn't play zone. No one could score because they're too little. And if you packed it in, they wouldn't be able to score. So you had to play man-to-man, which allowed more kids to get more shots. And later on, as we got into like the middle school, high school level, then okay, like it's real basketball rules. So it is important to think about, hey, how do I manipulate the rules? Playing on -on three-on-three soccer or four-on-four soccer, not 11-on-11 soccer gives more opportunities. And so if you're thinking about how do I get more reps for these kids to work on their motor skills? How do I make it fun? Well, it's more fun if you're better at it and it's more fun if you're getting to do more. And so we should really think about as parents, as coaches and as educators, as pediatricians, that it's okay for us to manipulate the rules to get what we're trying to get from a developmental standpoint. And I think that's, when we talk about long-term development, that is one of those pieces that I want people to think about a little bit more outside the box that youth sports aren't adult sports. And we can try to win and we can use games as a kind of measuring stick. And we can use games to try to figure out how to win. So use it as a cognitive piece, but we don't have to be slave to what the outcome is if we're working on development as the primary. And so we can all try to win, but it's not mutually exclusive, which we got to before.
1: So Matt, I would think that your career-long goal of trying to change the rules, you would really want to use that to lobby the NFL to change the, there's no defensive holding in the last two minutes of a game, right?
0: Yeah, I think something (laughs) like that. Actually, I want the rule change to be that if there's a bad call in the field and it's a flag, you have the option of throwing your challenge for the pass interference or in the New Orleans Saints case, the lack of pass interference yes credit. yes
2: careful Matt. Right. you're defending bill belichick's request to the rules committee that you can challenge any ruling at any time you
1: that is the new thing i believe careful. it's either the xfl or the usfl is doing this golden challenge where it can be either a penalty or a play mm-hmm. that you can challenge now once well, you get one always change the rules like, to make things better that's yeah. right They need to. Should also work on.
2: Interesting
1: part of that, though. Just to digress again, so they just, I just saw the video of the NFL Films version of that, where you can clearly see it, but then you also can see the The hint to the face face. (laughs) that was not called on the offensive line.
2: Yeah, yeah. the the rule should also state that in the second half, you have to stop the other team at least once. That would be good too. From scoring,
0: would help. It would help for sure.
2: I don't know. I mean, I love Philly sports. I, again,
1: again, you know, Matt. I know we've talked a little bit about the prepubertal and the postpubertal training here already. I actually tweeted out during your talk because I, I really like one of the quotes that you had when you were talking about the concept of neuronal learning. And just to, in case you guys hadn't seen that tweet, I, I basically his statement was: that you know, you've got a ten year old who's going out and traveling for baseball at various tournaments, and what would be more beneficial to that kid of spending their weekend in the tournament, maybe getting fifteen. 16 at bats maybe over the weekend or would it be better to have that kid spend some time in the cage and work on their hitting skills there and what's going to be more productive i know you already alluded to this jeremy as far as talking about tournaments like aau where i cringe every time i hear these kids talk about they're going out and they're spending all their time in games and i ask well when do you have practice well we don't never we never practice and, and it's just it's always competition it I don't know where these kids are trying to develop their skills, and I think that's just a big missing component of what a lot of youth training is. And, and I know we've we've talked about that and ways to do that. You guys have any thoughts on how to rectify that at a at a bigger level?
0: I think the parents need to understand what is development for their kids because I think they all want their kids to get better, and a little bit is the selling of this notion that if you play in more tournaments or more games, your kid naturally gets better. And I think we need to think about that the more repetitions you get at practicing something, the better you get at it. And where can you get those repetitions? In a game situation, as Jeremy mentioned, if your left hand isn't any good and you're trying to win the game, then you just use your right hand the whole time. Good and if, the, the more
2: good repetitions, the more perfect
0: repetitions. Right. Yeah. And, and you, we need to get you more repetitions And as Jeremy is mentioning to me many times, yeah, if you practice something poorly, then you'll be an expert at doing it poorly. So we want to do it correctly. And I think we should use games as a way of like a measuring stick. I'm not opposed to games. I'm not opposed to playing. They're fun. And when I coached, the kids all enjoyed playing games. But we have to get the ratio of of repetitions and practice to games right. And if the parents know that, hey, the best model of training is three practices in a game, or two practices in a game, and U.S. soccer has already come out with some of that, and that's how your kid actually gets good, then the idea of three games and one practice, we should really be looking at that like, I'm not paying $3,000 a year to be on the elite team that doesn't have practices and only plays games. You're not helping my kid get better. And if I'm paying $3,000, I want you to help my kid get better. And so how's the best way to do that? And I think if you said, hey, when you play lots of games, we get injuries, but if you practice and you practice in an appropriate manner, we have less injuries of practice and more skill development. than you would say from a medical standpoint, well, why are you playing in so many games? If you're not getting better, you're injured. And if you tear your ACL, you're out for a year. You're definitely not getting better. And so we want to avoid injuries. And we know there's more injuries in games. We need to like make sure we monitor the load. And unfortunately, Andy Gard, who gave a great lecture, but he recorded it. And it's on the uh, PRISM website, I think. He talked about monitoring load. When you monitor load, you use games as a way of training, but you also use practices as a way of training and you monitor and you make sure you balance them out. We know that in some games, soccer game, the center fielder, the midfielder, center half, he's running the whole game and the goalie's not running much at all. And so if the goalie only played in games and the center midfielder only played in games, then the goalie never gets any cardio as part of his workout. Like, you're, he's only working on a certain subset of skills. You got to make sure, Jeremy's laughing at me, but you got to make sure that you're working on developing the entire skill set and that's not just only at games.
2: Um, I, I'm laughing nearly Matt. that. So I think that he's right. So the main thing is, is there was an article that came out, was it um, uh, the one about, and it was, I think he presented at PRISM also, the more showcases you do, the more likely you're going to get a UCL and the the later you get your AC, your UCL, the better, because eventually you're going to get one. You know, at the MLB Combine, I'm pretty sure about 95% of the pitchers either are coming off or about to have their Tommy John. It's like being made in the mafia and everything like that. But those people said that, you know, the more showcases you do, the more injured, you're more likely to injure yourself. And they said specialization and the overcompetition. Yes and no. If you're really good, you probably didn't need that many showcases to begin with. You kind of showed it and you shut down. First of all, I don't know how many people get signed off of showcases you and you can count with me and we won't need both our hands. That's number one. But if you don't do well and you get lit up and then you go back to another showcase, what are you hoping to achieve there? You went and you did poorly. You need to go back. You need to work on what you did poorly with good coaching, go work on it in a lesser competition and move your way up. If you did poorly and you go back to a showcase, you, all you're doing is hoping that worse hitters show up. And eventually, if you're doing something incorrectly, yeah, you're going to hurt yourself. That's what happens. And then these the people that didn't need the showcases, they're going to hurt themselves when they go up against stuff for competition. NCA, minor leagues, major leagues, they're going to do it at some point too. But that's the same thing, right? They're, they start throwing harder because they need to. So that's where the injuries come from. Inappropriate competition. So inappropriate movements, right? Suboptimal movements and then they go and they do poorly, they throw harder, may not rest as much, make the same mistakes. They hurt themselves. They need to go back to the drawing board and and fix it. It's just like, and it's again, the ACL too and neuromuscular adaptations. We're talking about jumping, landing, running, turning, moving efficiently and appropriately pre-puberty. Well, how about ACLs, non-contact ACLs? And all the coaches who get mad at their strength and conditioning coaches who say, I spend all this time on ACL prehab and I had two ACLs, not understanding sample size, mm-hmm. uh, understandably, right? But these poor strength and conditioning coaches are trying to undo how many hundred thousand repetitions that were done poorly early on. You need to teach these kids early on how to jump out of land, especially. During, and I'm totally segueing, but that's not for Matt to listen to me like that, but is the fact that you go through puberty, you have these regressions that Matt talked about, and you have to identify those regressions. And, and then they're starting to come up with ways to identify. Because first of all, why do they quit? They get injured, they're not as good, and, and the perceived confidence doesn't equal challenge. Well, they regress. You've got to teach them again, reestablish physical literacy in their new bodies. And so they, then you teach them again in a low-load format, You know, shoes off, socks off, low intensity, technical skills, and everything like that with uh, whatever sport they're doing, but in a low load format. And then they can get used to it, reestablish their physical literacy, and then move on. So there's so many different places. If you start to do this ACL pre app, even high school and beyond, it's still, you know, if they haven't learned to jump and move correctly and everything. So, yeah, those, those are the two things. Now, going back to competition, you're right. It's about. What do we use? First of all, yes, we overcompete. We overcompete the hell out of this play in this country. So, but why are we competing? It's marketing. That's the first thing. First thing we said, right? U Sports is big business. That's the problem. It's fifteen billion dollar a year of business. Elite athlete rankings, all that crap. But you know, why are we competing? It's a big learning thing when we go overseas and, and we're playing other teams and and they're playing at uh, and they're trying to win. If somebody's watching a game, the coaches are still yelling and screaming. The kids are still hollering. But they're playing in a format to help them develop. And in our in the power sports that we play in with our power pitchers, you know, we don't do that, and we just go and we just have at it over competition, over you know, I don't want to high level competition. Specialization is not elite, but it's not high level competition. It's just high stakes competition, or in their own heads, and they're going and they're throwing and they're throwing their arms up. Uh, when you're younger, competition is can be scrimmages. Competitions can be the friendly games, similar, that are no more important than tag, can be like the way Matt put it. And as they get older and winning becomes more important, then it's competition for development. Are you working on your weekend? Are you working on a new position? Are you working on having the ball at your feet for soccer? Something like that. And then when you move on uh, from there, yeah, Clyde Brew will tell you tactics all throughout. But more sophisticated tactics, I would say, are important. And then, so competition for a reason, you know, what is your reason for competition? And if it's always travel far, high ranking, showcase, you're going to get hurt. You're going to burn out.
1: And that UCL study that Jeremy was referencing was by our colleague, Peter Kriz, and he's got some good work on the UCL and showcases and has been a big advocate as far as trying to help kind of reshape how we think about our baseball and baseball training. And I think there's going to be some good collaborations coming up soon to hopefully create some momentum to try and refocus a little bit about how we're doing stuff in baseball, especially for kids. Cause it is, I, personally, I think it's a lot of control. Very
0: uh, great thing. I thought about that is he showed that a lot of the showcases that were happening were kind of in the off season. And so they, they, then you extended their throwing season where they're throwing maximally and really there should probably be doing some strength and conditioning training during that off season and then focusing on kind of ramping up to a, a regular season. But by throwing the whole season and not working on the other motor patterns that you could be working on and not developing the strength uh, with strength training in the off season and just throwing only, you're putting yourself at more risk. You didn't, you didn't really protect your body and build it up. I, I think Jeremy and I would we'd advocate like, you know, strength training is part of this, whether you're little and you're just doing push-ups, or you're climbing the monkey bars, and you're you can do strength training that way. Or later on, you start getting into the more sophisticated strength training with strength and conditioning coaches who know what they're doing and know how to do those progressions appropriately.
1: Well, great discussion, guys. We end our podcast typically with something we call the Pearl of the Podcast. It's your time where we give each of you your key take-home point on this topic. So what's your pearl of the podcast? And we'll start with Jeremy.
2: Well, I think it's specialization can't be the first and the last question when it comes to forced participation. Bad training is bad training. Bad specialization is bad specialization. We need to focus, like we said, what goes on inside the house and uh, what's the best pathway for skill acquisition and for success. And at the same time, what leads to injury, burnout, and quitting? And in order to that, we need to collaborate. And just like with concussions, we collaborated with the school administrators, we need to collaborate with the experts such as the performance coaches and the sports scientists who are light years ahead of us with their training load monitoring and, and the fact that we can get lots of data out very quickly. And so with good research comes change of practice and and with good change in practice comes some broad changes. We've done it before with baseball, with uh injuries and pitch counts and everything like that. So research drives rule changes that Matt is is really trying to hammer home. With rule changes come culture changes because it took a lot of buy-in for these parents to uh, understand, but eventually they all did and now they all know it very well. And so with rule changes comes culture changes and that brings us back to concussion and how much we all needed to work as a medical community towards culture change. And again, it's a hard sell without data, but with data comes Again, advocacy and think of uh, Matt's brother Vince. We have rule changes, we have culture changes, and we can advocate. And for specific education, coaches and specific educations for physicians as well. You know, you don't really if you start the, the, the question with specialization, then you're going to miss every, you're going to miss all of that. And most importantly, you're going to you're going to miss the people who have no access to specialization, like the people that that Vince, the kids that Vince works with. So that research needs to be what goes on inside the house. And, and then what works and what doesn't, and then we can just bring that to people who, who don't have access. Because with rule changes and with data come, comes advocacy for those in lower social economic classes and communities, and bring it there. And also, we talked. You talked about earlier the uh, physical education. No one wants to do physical education more, and the colleges and universities don't want to don't want to support it. And there should be and with this data, we can come up with ways to fund these schools and reward these schools for offering it. And we can work on making physical education available to people all over the country, or twice a week, it should be every day, but even if you get twice a week, there's your LTAD right there. So there needs to be a bit of what Matt says, a paradigm shift in how we look at sports participation in youth athletes. Specialization can be a problem. Absolutely, it can, but it's not the first question I asked.
0: Why does that really, we think of development the way I think of pediatrics and kids, that it's a continuum we should be thinking about how do we do things developmentally appropriate at the right time. And the right time for one kid is maybe a little bit different for the other. The right time for one sport is different than another. We need to be thinking about, can we develop kids in a way that they improve their motor skills, they improve their physical literacy, we improve their baseline capacity. And then over time, they will probably matriculate into areas that are what they have interest in and they're good at. And then we should be still doing the same concept of training and thinking them holistically and thinking about where they are mentally, where they are physically, and then how what's the appropriate training for that? And if we're doing that, I think you could ask the parents, what are you getting out of your kids' sports participation? I think that's a fair question. And we want to think of them as it should be a continuum. It should be fun and they should be learning something. They need skill acquisition early on to kind of keep it going. And so just showing up but not getting skill development is a problem. And so going to games only but never getting better doesn't lead to keep someone kind of fit or active for life, which is what we want. I still play old man soccer. I still play old man basketball. I'm 52 years old. I like doing those things. But the reality is if I couldn't dribble a ball or couldn't shoot a ball, I would have stopped playing basketball a long time ago. And if I can't track a soccer ball, I can't look up and make a pass, then I would have stopped playing with old guys a long time ago you do need to have some basic competency in your sport to continue to play it. And so at the early levels, we got to be working on those motor skills to develop competency. And at the later levels, we can work on the skills that are required for lead performance.
1: Great stuff, guys. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Matt Grady and Dr. Jeremy Hing, for their time and their expertise today. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Pete sports pod and be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming platform. So you don't miss an episode. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host. And until next time, thanks for listening to the pediatric sports medicine podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the
0: pediatric sports medicine podcast.